Hi, everybody. We're with uh, Chia in the middle, who is a researcher on this book, and Jeff, my co-author on, I don't know, I guess that's your right. This is the book, Whiplash, that we spent the last, what, four years writing? Is that right? Four, four years for you, yeah. Four years. Yeah, and, uh, and Chia joined us, what, like, uh, how, like a couple years About ago. Two and a half years ago. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I said this in the conversation with, uh, with uh, Reed, but um, I learned a ton doing this book. This was kind of like a research journey as much as it was sort of writing something that was already in our head. And I guess as a journalist, Jeff, and as a researcher, Chid, you're probably used to it. But it's all these little things that like I said, yeah, I, I, I heard somewhere that. And then she would go and like find the reference and fact check it or sometimes say, no, that, no, you, you heard wrong, you know. And what was neat was all of these sort of cocktail party stories I, that I had have got turned into substantiated or unsubstantiated facts. And then Jeff would go and chase down the story and get the actual quotes and meet the guy that I had heard of. And, and so it was, it was, it was, that part was pretty amazing for me. I don't know um, what you guys think. And by the way, um, Everybody who's watching on the stream, we're going to try to actually engage you guys. So if you have questions or comments, uh, let us know. Well, um, it, it was it was amazing for me because I got to be the guy who got to chase that stuff down. Because, I mean, that's it's if, if you're a journalist, especially, you know, I've been doing it for 25 years, like it becomes this instinctual thing. And so you basically walk around all day hoping to find good stories. Um, you know, that's how you make your living. You like stories equals rent money. Um, and so it, and Joey had these great stories he'd collected after like years of traveling all over the world. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And, and Chi, what you, you're like a, I, I don't even know exactly what you did before, but you like an, <laughs> a legal online investigative. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, have a law degree. Um, I worked in background investigations for a long time, but my real th this was my dream job because what I really like to do is is read fun stuff on the internet and and check out books from the library and bury myself in information. So, um, and that's what I got to do on this book. For so, other than the fact that it was sometimes slightly disorganized, we were a pretty good team. <laughs> But um, so no one's asking any questions about the book, but maybe we could describe the book. I've been describing the book over the last few days. Jeff, I'd love to hear how you describe the book. <laughs> sure. Um, <clears throat> so I, I I like to go from the premise that um, that that our technology has outstripped our ability, and that that sort of you know like we think we've installed this new operating digital age, but we haven't. Uh, you know, our technology's there. The world around us has changed, um, but our, our our brains move much more slowly than that. And it's not so, our brains is sort of the simplistic way of putting it. It's that our our ways of thinking, uh, or you know, so we have some synonyms for that that we played with in the, in the introduction, um, because it's 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 a bit of a elusive concept. Um, I mean, there, there actually isn't, this is, Chia and I went down this rabbit hole for like two weeks, by the way, maybe longer, Chia, of, of trying to find what is it you're talking about when you're talking about the set of uh, heuristics, you know, like rules of thumb, 
um, like all the things you don't know that you know, uh, it's, it's, it, you know, the, the metaphor that, uh, you know, there's a fourth person, uh, uh, Kyle Pope, uh, uh, he's now the editor and publisher of Columbia Journalism Review, um, but he actually, edit, you know, was sort of a background editor on this. Uh, so, and, and, and Kyle's not here, but uh, the metaphor Kyle liked was, if if your co- if your if your conscious cognition is the furniture in the house, the thing we're talking about is the house, and so the book is about the 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 disjunction that happens when the world has moved on, and and you you can't quite uh, uh, you know just as as humans as biological creatures uh, 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 you know uh, you know the, the have to follow the dictates of change at the evolutionary uh, time scale. You know we are just lagging far behind. And and what does that disjunction look like? Um, another, you know, the, so that's probably the, the long-winded, confusing way I've <laughs> to find the book. The uh, but the short one I like is that William Gibson once said uh, that you know the future's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Uh, you know, Joey Chia and I. We're trying to, you know, put a window uh, into that future, uh, you know, because we, I, I think we believe that there's something fundamentally democratic, or that they're saying fundamentally undemocratic, and I, I think Gibson would agree actually about the, you know, the fact that it's it's unevenly evenly yeah. distributed, that you know it's a valuable and noble thing to just try to distribute it more evenly. Right. It's like, hey, this is what's going to be important. Well, this so, could save your job. I mean, and that's sort of. What's interesting is bottom up doesn't necessarily mean democratic, right? I mean, it's, it's it, actually, we've got a question from Cameo that uh, says, what was the most surprising thing you learned while writing the book? That's a good question. What do you think? Well, that is a good question. There's so many. I mean, there's stuff I learned. There were times that I just, like, I felt like I had to, like, pull the, the, the lag on me is... <laughs> It's like literally like four or five minutes. So I, I, I'm trying to act it out, but like, uh, uh, there were times I felt like it was like almost like viscerally a roller coaster. Like I had to hang on for dear life I, at one point, and, and this was sort of the same time that society was learning this. Cause you know, around this time we started seeing news coverage of it, but that, that only one tenth. Now we know it's actually closer to one third of the cells in our body actually belong to us as an organism, and that the rest belong to other organisms. Uh, many of which will outlive us. Many of which will die beyond us. And 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 that to me, uh, I mean, that's fascinating as a biological precept, but to to me, it had ontological or you know like philosophical implications and and the 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 idea of thinking that like we aren't who you know like your identity of yourself as a single self is is really is really sort of uh problematized by that fact i mean you're you're much closer to like in the way like a tree in the amazon is less a single organism than a host like an ecosystem that's what we're like I, I, I started so, thinking so, of us as wandering Death Stars. So, so that, <laughs> that's what um, I think uh, Kevin Slavin's recently calling a holobiont, but it's kind of like this biological unit of ecosystem. And it ties to your metaphor earlier about the house rather than the furniture. I mean, 
if you think about it, I mean, adding to, I think this microbiome thing really did kind of break when we were writing the book, but um, the human gut has sort of more biodiversity and I guess density of microbes than just about anywhere. I mean, it's, it's equivalent to, you know, anywhere you can find on earth, except that human can go places these bio, the, these uh, microbes can't. And we provide a very uh, nutrient rich, uh, temperature stable environment so we really are like these spaceships for these microbes and then we've learned that they can communicate with us through the vagus nervous system and in fact you have more of certain neurotransmitters like um, serotonin in our gut than we do in our brain and there was a hypothesis that i heard from a scientist at saifu that um, a lot of the things that we our brain uses to communicate with itself these neurotransmitters were originally created by our microbes um, and then we started using them. And, and we actually have some molecules in mother's milk, for instance, that human beings can't metabolize, but we create these to feed certain microbes in our gut that are essential for our well-being. And so, so we've co-evolved with the microbes. And in fact, you could sort of think of us as having evolved in order to create an ecosystem and a, a way for microbes to move around. And then the, if you keep going on that hypothesis, the fact that we eat together, the fact that we kiss, the fact that we smell people to decide our mates are all the microbes using us as a way to move around and evolve and sort of enjoy what they want to enjoy. So, so I, I think, you know, sort of if you look at it from the perspective of the microbe, we're like, you know, um, earth and, and when, C. diff comes and starts to take over. The other microbes are like, no, you're destroying the environment, you know, and it's probably, and that's why the fecal transplant works. That's like sending a bunch of hippies in our body to put, to put down the, put down the, um, the C. diff, you know, so C. diff is kind of like the alt-right, you know, the alt-right of microbes gives you diarrhea and, uh, chases away all the good guys. It's act so actually, so actually that was, you've reminded me, that was like, of, of all the many trippy moments of being like, holy shit, that's a thing. Uh, that was the one that was like the trippiest. Like, <laughs> I, I remember having the thought like, like here we think like we domesticated the cow and our microbes are like, no, dude, we domesticated you to domesticate the cow. Like we're the ones driving the spaceship, not you. I mean, that is a really, Again, like ontologically, like like how how you conceive of yourself, there's something deeply humbling about that. Mm -hmm. That you know that you aren't it, almost spiritual. I think well, it's sort of a and, beautiful thing. You're and, much and, more embedded and meshed in in life than we thought. And and what's interesting is there's a lot of evidence that what we want to eat comes from our microbes. Like there's evidence that chocolate is food for our microbes, and our microbes tell us that we want chocolate. And so. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of evidence of sort of microbial control of our brains. And so I think that probably most of our behavior is controlled by some combination of microbes and advertising agencies. That's kind of why we eat what we eat. Um, the, the, okay, Gershon says, uh, but wait, do the microbes care what we're tweeting? Um, you know, I, well, they do because uh, there is also a lot of evidence that while our microbes influence us, our brain also influences the microbial balance of our gut. So if you're depressed, your microbes will start to uh, change in the way that they're, I mean, this is a theory that the microbes react 
to your uh, your mental state and, and vice versa. So, Grishan, I guess if you assume that you're tweeting something that changes your emotional state, um, it might change your uh, microbial state. And, and, and Oliver, I think um, one thing that has happened since uh, the well, it's actually, no, this was during the book, but, um, but I think it's in the process of happening right now, which is pretty amazing, which ties to all of this is really sort of the understanding of epigenetics, right? So I think when we were kids and going to school and taking biology, the common fact was that uh, your child uh, was just based on DNA and that anything you did in your life, um, you might cause damage to the DNA, but fundamentally your child was just a product of the DNA. Turns out that your experiences can be passed on from generation to generation and that there's this thing called epigenetics, which is the information about which bits of the DNA are actually turned on, expressed or not. And then the microbes, because you're, 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 the mother, especially through the vaginal canal, will transfer microbes to the kids. And when that's not transferred properly, you have mental problems, you have a, um, higher rates of obesity, higher rates of all kinds of things. And so, so the, the, you've got the DNA, you've got the epigenetics, and then you've got the microbes, and then you've got the viruses also all get transferred on to the kids and other things that we might not even know. And so, so I think what's interesting is that this co sort of common notion that um, um, the only information you're s transmitting to your child is the DNA, that that's actually false is a pretty new thing. Um, I don't and know if you guys have Oliver, there's, there's also quite a bit of stuff in the book that was evolving as it was being written. So up until the very end, we were, you know, Je Jeff and Joey were collecting more information on AI and cryptocurrencies particularly um, are, were areas that were continuing to evolve as they were finishing the book and we really you know could have could have written an another book about that and um and one of the reasons there is a blog that goes with the book and one of the reasons for that is to cover some of those areas that are developing so fast that you know at some point you have to turn in a manuscript and the book is done and Oliver's question about hardware and software. I mean, I think the best example, by the way, sorry to cut you off, Jeff, but just an example is that if you think about the DNA as the stuff on your hard disk, the source code, and then the epigenetics are which apps are actually running, um, that's a, a one way to think about, you know, the difference between your genetics and epigenetics. I don't know. You, I, sorry, Jeff, I cut you off. What were you going to say? Oh, no, it's fine. It's, um, uh, it's, I mean, it's going back. It's, it's, we can get to it later. Okay. Let's get to it later. There, there's a question about psychedelic drugs. Um, and as Timothy Leary's godson, I get asked this question a lot. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, I, I think what's interesting is that there's a lot to learn from psychedelic drugs. Um, but mm -hmm. because of the, the, obviously the war on drugs, um, a lot of the core research got cut off, you know, the, the divinity school right near my house is where Timothy and, uh, uh, Gunther Wheel uh, gave psychedelic psilocybins to the divinity school students who then subsequently go on to see God. And, um, and we have some um, uh, really interesting work that was done back in the 60s. And interestingly, though, just in the last few years, there's a substantial amount of um, psychedelic drug research that's starting to be uh, allowed. And um, I, think, I think we will learn a lot from it. Um, but I think that... Uh, uh, and we also have a lot more tools um, that we can we can use. And but I, I think that there's a lot we don't understand about psychedelic drugs. I don't know if you guys 
want to talk about <laughs> it's, it's well no i i don't mind it because i'm i'm you know i'm very open i i i i am very happy that i tried psychedelic drugs i'm very happy that i stopped using them but you know, many 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 years ago um but it, it, they provided me with a lot of really valuable insights i mean i've always thought that that under the right conditions um that uh, uh, you know that they can that they clearly are something very potent and powerful that probably has a lot of positive and possibly a lot of negative effects. Um, it, it's I've been very interested because um, one of my uh, a friend of mine is is the Harvard psychologist James Hopper, and James works he, he's, he's sort of like one of the leading uh, clinical psychologists working on PTSD. So he works he works with a lot of um, crime victims and a lot of veterans, and he was. Uh, uh, and I think I have this right. If if uh, you know James is out there, someone else knows him. I you know hopefully I'm getting this right. I, I, he was part of the driving force to get ecstasy approved for PTSD treatments. And then right sort of that same week, a study came out showing that psilocybin had dramatic impact on sufferers of of you know severe depression. Um, you know, like stunning effect, not just like, oh, they felt a little better, but like, um, you know, like a deeply ameliorative uh, effect. Like it really, um, you know, I think the headline, maybe it was a little exaggerated, but was, uh, you know, sort of like 12 hours of, of mental chaos followed by months of peace. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think that you know, it was just what Joey said. I mean, it was it was shut off for political reasons, not not uh, medical or, or you know. I don't think anyone who was involved in that research felt but, that we had exhausted. But as a university administrator, I urge you: do not do drugs. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, okay, there's another question about um, how our radar process looks like on doing the book. How do you curate a lot of information? Um, so I guess this is a little bit about the process. How did we? Figure it out. I mean, do you want to just because we had the we had the principles first, and they became sort of the you call them bricks, right? And then we cut across with these yeah. thematic arcs, and then we chase down the stories to try to tell those stories and support the principles. I don't know. Do you want to talk about this a little bit more, Jeff? After you answer well, your phone, yeah. I, it's so I, I, it's actually perfect. It's, it's what I was. It's, it is what I. So the thing I was going to say when we were talking process before was that. There were times when I wanted to like time travel back to the you and me that were first meeting back in 2012 and be like, are you crazy? Look how ambitious this is. What is the, what, what is the organizing principle here? The world? Like, you can't do this. Like, you know, this is uh, because it, it, when it came time to, I mean, the book made a lot of sense um, when we wrote the proposal and, um, but then when it came time to, uh, for one thing, it posed a research problem. Like, how do you research resilience over strength? Actually, excuse me, resilience isn't that hard, but um, dis uh, uh, disobedience over compliance. Like, I mean, that's but a lot of things. general counsel really hated anything. that one. <laughs> oh, yeah, I bet. <laughs> I know a lot of people, that's the one that has been most controversial. People really you know, take that one in particular. And, yeah. and, and, and then um, some of my students take it a little bit too literally. So <laughs> Gershon, Gershon on this thread is one of my favorites, but he's also one of the biggest troublemakers in the, in, in the best sense of the world word. Um, but uh, 
Um, but yeah, I think just, I mean, to finish answering the question, I mean, I think the radar was kind of interesting because we went back in time where Chia and um, Jeff went into like the, you know, Athenians and the history of the Industrial Revolution. We also went deep where we would go after researchers to try to figure out, you know, like when we're doing the cryptography, we had, um, you know, we had all, 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 all kinds of people, including Ron Reves, one of the most you know, famous cryptographers to go in to really help us with the sort of what is cryptography, the history of cryptography. But a lot of it was just watching the news because as Chi was saying, all, all of this stuff was playing out. And every time we, we delayed the, the publication of the book, we had to rewrite like, you know, 20% of it. And so, so there was like a forward facing radar, a deep facing radar and like a seismic thing. And then, then this historical thing. But I think that's kind of what made the book fun because I didn't have a lot of this historical context and some of the oh, by the way somebody gave a shout out to your quote so at least one person figured it out um on, on twitter they, they yeah. love the quote they, they said they said mic drop after the quote but um do you want to do you want to give it away uh i think i think at least for this audience maybe we should explain it um yeah sure so so is this so, the uh let me look yeah so so it, so it starts out um tamson donard june 16th 1846 our journey so far has been pleasant, the roads have been good, and food plentiful. Indeed, if I do not experience something far worse than I have yet done, I shall say the trouble is all in getting started. <laughs> That's like the book, too, right? <laughs> it totally is. I, I love that. I remember the first time I, I encountered that, I was like, that is genius. That, like, here is this woman about to, like, sail placidly into like you know starvation cannibalism and homicide like and she has no idea she just has no idea and, and, and for, it is i mean and what but you should you should describe i, I was going to say for, for for some of our for some of our um international listeners who may not be familiar with the story yeah. go, google the donner party um to find out who yes. tamson donner was and why the trouble was not in fact all in getting started <laughs> Yes, it's it's one of the most <laughs> horrible <laughs> journeys in recorded history. So so, yeah. but it, it was it was it, yeah, it is a little bit hard for people to get. So I'm I'm glad it's so prominent. Well, <laughs> and, and well, and the, my thinking was that in because you know as a journalist you are trained uh, rightly to always be clear and lucid, and it's never about you. It's about your audience, and and you know, you're really just there to you're not trying to be clever or smart. And, and we really are, journalists are pretty, magazine journalists are pretty good about that. Like we edit that out of ourselves. Like either your editor gets it or you do. Um, but that was the one part of a book where you're allowed to be cryptic and mysterious. And, and, and so I, I took advantage of it. Okay. <laughs> but but so, yeah, so, no, so, not everyone is going to get it. So, I'm surprised so, one person got it. I, know. I was we, we should, no we should, we should send we should send like special <laughs> things to people who get that. Um, so Gershon, <laughs> I, I think this is serious, but I'll answer it. Um, Gershon asks, "What's the bigger deal, the internet or cheap air travel?" Chia, do you want to take that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm I'm gonna. I'm going to say the internet, um, partly because not everyone can access cheap air travel. Not that everyone can access the internet either. Um, but also because something we didn't really get a chance to touch on too much in the book, but something that's going to be a major, major change is the effects of climate change. 
um, which are going to have an effect on cheap air travel, whether it's still available, whether people morally feel right um, traveling that often. And, and, so, I think, and, and I think one of the important things to recognize is that um, cheaper often makes it more done. So if you just say cheaper but not ecologically better, then it really screws us up. And so it's kind of like the other thing is even with cheap power, if we were to figure out how to get unlimited power, um, even if it weren't fossil fuels, it could create an abundance that also wreaks havoc uh, if we don't know how to control it, right? Because everybody would be doing all kinds of stuff. So, so it's interesting when you think about um, uh, these complex systems. Um, oh, he's, Gershon asked in the relation to the DNA conversation as well. Yeah, um, I just saw that. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. I mean, it it, it is interesting because well, one of the the things that's sort of the history of the media lab is this whole notion of atoms and bits and sort of the relationship between the two and and making machines that make information and make information that makes machines and at some level, I think both bits and information. I mean, uh, uh, Seth Lloyd, who's a you know, um, quantum computing guy, he teaches a physics course in a really interesting way by looking at it from the perspective of information and and um, Entropy, and, and this is where I'm going to just walk right out of my um, comfort zone in terms of my knowledge of physics. But he's able to teach a whole physics class using the theory of information um, rather than um, uh, uh, traditional mechanics and describe the whole world. So it's, um, it, I think that the, the meta on sort of DNA as information and, and, wow. and um, molecules is kind of an interesting thing as well. Yeah. Well, you know what? I Gershon was referring to was, and, and we don't address it explicitly in the book, but it's something that we had to talk about. Um, and, and I think it sort of is the spirit of being our own most severe critics is Robert Gordon's book, The, the Rise and Fall of American Growth. Um, because he, you know, our book isn't exact, like, our, you know, our book isn't like a book length argument of that you know change is going to be dramatic and is increasing exponentially but it it takes that argument as a presumption um in the introduction and so it's it's sort of like if this is true then the principles are important um and robert gordon's book if anyone missed it it's i mean it's a it's a big dense economics text but it's also especially the first half is very accessible and robert gordon's point would be uh, uh, actually, it's pretty explicit. The years between 1870 and 1920 were vastly more innovative and change, uh, witnessed a more dramatic period of change than anything that's happened since, including 1970 through 2000, you know, 2020. Um, and I, I really, I mean, as, a, as an author, I mean, this is my second, in some ways my third go around, but really, really my second like full book length book. Um, you know, these are, these are crisis moments. When someone who teaches at Princeton, <laughs> you know, who's an economist is like basically saying, I haven't met you and I don't know your ideas, but you're full of shit, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but, but in reading the book, I, you know, I feel like I respectfully disagree. I mean, I, I think that, that, that I think there's a pretty good argument to be made that electricity, the telephone, or cheap air travel are um, were responsible for more dramatic change up to this point. But what I think that fails to recognize is, is what dramatic advances in 
uh, in biology, although pro primarily genetics, um, and as as well as as you know, the next billion coming online, um, and uh, you know what the effects of of ever. Uh, uh, you know, even if Moore's law peters out, like uh, uh, certainly if quantum computing picks up where it left off, that 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 the I, I think the big changes are yet to come. I mean, okay, here was another trippy moment, Joey. Remember, I forget who you talked to, but you were like, yeah, I think there's a pretty good uh, chance that within the next twenty years, the human species will fork. That's a pretty big change. <laughs> if if the human species starts versioning itself. And like by 2050, my daughter is like, like a certain species, like a, a legacy species of Homo sapiens, and we we actually have to change Linnaean taxonomy in order to accommodate multiple, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, bipedal hominids, like intelligent, you know, hominids, like, like. So I, I, I that's how I got around that. I, I think there is. But it's 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 a pretty valuable critique of of not just us, but actually, uh, um, um, uh, sorry, big shift. Um, well, of, well, uh, well, that actually, Rob pointed out. I mean, CRISPR sort of just kind of happened as we were writing the book, and CRISPR gene drive definitely happened um, as we were writing the book. Yeah. And Kevin Esfeld, who's in the lab, was um, his important paper with George Church describing CRISPR gene drive before they had invented it, which was important because it got the conversation going, um, was right around that time. And I think um, the, uh, you know, reality and the practicality of um, editing uh, the genome, not just of us, but of things in our environment, um, uh, uh, change a lot. And what's what, what I find fascinating is also just looking at you know, and this is what's fun about being at MIT is you can start to go to Harvard and other places and grab, you know, okay, let's go talk to an evolutionary biologist mathematician, because that's actually really important in trying to figure out what the landscape looks like when you start fiddling with DNA. And, and, and what's neat is, you know, to be able to bring in, you know, this last weekend, I was, I had dinner with or lunch with a bunch of physicists who are thinking about sort of AI in the context of sort of astrophysics and things like that. And it's, it's, it's what's interesting right now, I think, is that you know, not all of the people in these disciplines are 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 um, talking to each other, but a fairly substantial number of um, sort of people who have really deep expertise in somewhat esoteric stuff are coming around talking about things like bioethics or AI or you know what 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 is what what does um, you know what does what does CRISPR gene drive mean for us? And it's and, it, and it's it's actually fascinating. I think one of the bridges that we're trying to um, uh, uh, um, close the gap on is sort of the computer science versus society because that's a that's a short term one. But um, I'm teaching a course in January with um, Jonathan Citrain, and it was kind of an I was re doing a reading on the plane, and uh, yes, I read on paper. Um, but there was this there's this really do you know this? This is um, C. P. Snow, the Reed Lecture, 1959, and uh, and this is. And this is a, it's it's like it's 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 called the two cultures and it's it's from 1959 talking about how um, the the intellectuals um, need to talk to the scientists or we're gonna it's gonna suck you know and it's 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 really funny because it's it's written like it's a you know an urgent um, uh, problem of the moment you know and it's really kind of sort of defines 
today, I think one of the biggest problems that we have is that the science and the technology that we talk about in the book aren't really understood by policymakers and the social scientists and vice versa. And I think that that's another piece of the sort of woven through the book is, is trying to, um, get, get this out. And, and, and sorry, one last point on this is, is, is I think our book agent, um, John Brockman was, I think, one of the important figures in popularizing science. I mean, I think that people didn't believe that science books could be bestsellers and he proved them wrong, you know, and I think that getting people to enjoy um, talking about science is really important. Sorry, I'm going to say one last thing is, um, but the problem I think is it's still kind of a metropolitan thing. And I think one of the things that I know, I thought about, and I talked to Maria Zuber, who's our um, VP of research who does um, space missions, but the first moonshot, the real moonshot, there were kids in Iowa getting into rockets. I mean, it was an all-American dream, right? And the problem right now is that the moonshots that we have are kind of in Silicon Valley billionaire land, or you know, or they're sort of on East Coast medical land, and we're not. I mean, most we have fewer people who believe in evolution in America than we did back then, right? So, so I think there's another thing that I really hope that this book does, and I think the reason I kind of like the fact that we have a physical book that's going to be sitting around in bookstores in places we would never go is that maybe somebody will pick it up and get kind of excited about science. And that was something that was important to us from the beginning, and it was a choice we had to make um, at the outset is, is you know, there's basically like a, a book of this kind. It can be two, one of two books. It, it can be a book where, you know, you're really laboring to impress the tribe of people, uh, you know, that, that are also inhabiting those little pockets of future would be one way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people in Silicon Valley, people in Cambridge, people in New York, uh, or uh, you can write a book that's trying to popularize a lot of what that tribe already knows. So again, like to try to distribute the future more evenly. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't want to say we've been criticized for that, but a couple of the reviews have pointed out, like, uh, you know, some of this material will be, will be uh, familiar to you if, if you read Wired. And as a journalist trained to always be trying to write something completely new, in, in both my books, that's been sort of a, a grudging, painful thing to be like, I know people are going to already know some of this, but I think you have to, if you're serious about democratizing scientific knowledge, if you're serious about creating a world where where simple ideas, beautiful, you know, elegant ideas like natural selection are widely understood, uh, then you do the C.P. Snow lecture. I read that for this book, but in a totally different <laughs> connection. Um, but but you know you you, ha- you have to take that seriously and you have to be willing and you know so so I'm teaching this book for I, I created a class for this semester it's called what's the big idea five ideas that will change uh, our worlds tomorrow or so I forget exactly what it's called but um and but it's what it really is is a science writing class and the lesson is is that in the in the future journalists are going to have to learn how to communicate complex ideas to wide audiences and that I, I do i feel like that's one of our biggest challenges as a democratic society and I, I think it's one we have to take much more seriously than we have been and i hope the book i hope the book does that it's my biggest hope for that book is that it does that 
Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that to me, that was kind of, and, and also, you know, what was great about working with you, Jeff, is to be able to write it in a voice that would be digestible and interesting enough to read for people who wouldn't normally end up on my blog. You know, I mean, I, or, I already had my own little audience, but just kind of like this whole thing that we just went through with the election. I mean, we're really good at talking to people we agree with. And I think what I'm hoping is yeah. that this book is going to be picked up by people who really aren't in our normal sphere and, um, and, uh, uh, and hopefully, uh, um, you know, maybe join our conversation. Um, we're kind of running out of time. I don't know if anybody has any last questions or if you guys want to say any last things before we, and, and actually we, you know, this, we're, this is the first time we've done this format. Um, we could keep doing them all the time if we wanted to, or we could bring other guests in. Um, but if you guys in the comments later or somewhere on your blogs, um, tell us if you like this format or what you think we should change on it. Um, uh, we can definitely iterate on it. And yeah, definitely citizen science going mainstream. I think, you know, with, with SafeCast, uh, it was really interesting going from a project where we, this is where we were measuring the radiation after Fukushima with a bunch of citizen scientists, people just sort of denying us and trying to not talk about us to now the government's, you know, asking us to teach them how we did it. And, um, uh, the Japanese government, I don't I think I'm not supposed to talk about this, but I will. The Japanese government actually asking us to validate their data because the citizens trust our data more. You know, I mean, it's just think what's really interesting. It's kind of um, it's kind of like Wikipedia versus Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, I think at some level, once citizen science gets good enough, you've got the agility and the permissionless mo motion that um government agencies just can't do. I mean, there's a great story with um, Sean Bonner, who uh, is one of the co-founders of uh, SafeCast. I mean, he, they did a little workshop in Washington, D.C., and all the government folks were there, and they were making these little Geiger counter um, kits, and they didn't have any data around the White House because it was classified or something. They had the data, but they didn't publish it. And they walked around the White House and walked around Washington, D.C., collected all the data and posted it on SafeCast, and they're like, oh, well, I guess we have the data now, so might as well publish ours too. You know, and, and it's just this really interesting thing about this ties into practice over theory, right? You just go out and do it. And then the more you do it, the more people you attract. And then we, more experts are joining. And, and a lot of the, the, these academics who poo pooed the citizen science around SafeCast are now some of the best um, contributors to our community. So, so I think that, that, you know, getting back to why I think the internet's great in many ways is it it has this ability to like wikipedia i mean wikipedia is kind of the exception that proves the rule but but can we do things more like wikipedia because i think in a sense safecast is like wikipedia where it became sort of a, a collect sort of a strange attractor of everybody interested in sort of sensors and radiation and mapping and and um and and stuff like that so um sorry rant uh, can, can i throw something yeah can, can i throw something out about citizen science so this is because of, uh, so my first book was, was uh, called Crowdsourcing because it's it, it was it was an expansion of a Wired article in 2006 where, you know, in in which my editor and I coined that term, crowdsourcing. And so citizen science obviously is, is a form of that. And uh, in that same way, you know, all books are learning experiences and, and that's sort of the joy as you get to learn these amazing things. But one of the things I learned for that is that the, like the great shining city on a hill for citizen science is ornithology. Like ornithology has has it figured it out. Like like one of the anecdotes I had in that first book was, um, you know, before the academics 
sort of did like a big brain meld with with bird watchers, which by the way, it's the most popular recreational activity in America by like a degree of magnitude. Like bird watching is beyond huge. Um, and yet up until like actually around the time Facebook comes out because they they kind of wound up they 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 took a, they learned a lot of lessons from Facebook, uh, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Um, up until that point, it's like no one was exploiting the fact that millions of eyes and ears were on the ground.